Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Ah, welcome. Uh, you're listening to uh, Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. Thanks to the Ruminations crew for another great show, highlighting issues around homelessness. My name's Bill, and for the next hour, my guests will be sharing their journey of recovery from active alcoholism. I'd like to welcome Jeff and Dan to the 3CR studio this afternoon. Hi. Hello. Um, As members of Alcoholics Anonymous, they're going to share their experience with alcoholism and how Alcoholics Anonymous has helped them. Um, We usually start talking about um, childhood and growing up and things like that. and so, uh, Jeff, do you want to sort of start and tell us what life was like and when alcohol first presented itself to you? Yeah, sure. Um, I grew up in Scotland um, where alcohol was very prevalent. It was uh, something that was widely done, kind of like Australia, really. Um, we didn't have drive-in bottle shops, though. That was a, a brilliant <laughs> discovery for me when I got over here. Um, <clears throat> you know, my parents were... Just normal, normal folks. We had a, a good life. Um, my dad was an alcoholic himself, but it didn't really impinge much on us growing up. But alcohol was something that you wanted to do, and I tried it really when I was about 15 years old. A friend uh, had stolen a bottle of Perno from his parents, and we split it with the, um, you know, you can imagine the consequences of two 15-year-olds having half a bottle of Perno each. Um, it was messy. Um, but there was something about that experience that, you know, I kind of knew that I wanted to do it again. I have no idea why, because it was deeply unpleasant. But, yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I did that and we started, uh, we started getting into pubs, getting served underage, which was part of the game. Yeah. Um, was that easy? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, even in a small town where I grew up, apart from the one pub where my dad went. Yeah. Um, but you know, he he later said that you know he didn't mind. He knew we were going to do it. Just don't do it where he knew. <laughs> Very understanding. Oh yeah, yeah. And <laughs> um, yeah, and went from there. Went to university. Um, we're in Edinburgh. You can imagine a, a whole bunch of Scottish students. We didn't hold back. Um, everyone was doing it. So you know, my drinking didn't look abnormal or different from anybody else at that stage. Um, Did you want to follow in your dad's foot footsteps? Um, well, when I was a when I was a young kid, yeah, you wanted to be like your dad. You yeah, know, that was that was the pinnacle, being like your dad, which meant going to work, working hard all day, and then having a couple of beers in the pub at night. Right. Um, Did you see him as an alcoholic? Did you think of him as an alcoholic? I mean, uh, only only latterly, only he died when I was seventeen. So right. yeah, only sort of the last couple of years of his life, we knew he was an alcoholic. I mean, there was there was no two ways about it. I mean, he was yeah. never. He was never violent or abusive or he was just useless. Yeah. You know, okay. just, which, uh, you know, a, a feeling I came to experience myself later in my life, you know. Mm. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I wasn't that different from anybody else on appearances. Um, but, you know, looking back, I can see I was beginning to use alcohol more frequently. Um it just became the norm for me to have alcohol around. And, you know, when other guys all left university and we got jobs and stuff, they toned it down. You know, they, they continued to drink, but, you mm. know, they'd have a couple of glasses of wine on a Saturday night or, you yeah. know, 
when they were out, they'd have a few a few pints. But um, I carried on in postgraduate studies and into working in a university. Which so, so did it affect your studies? Um, I don't think so. I yeah. mean, I managed to get three degrees out of it. Yeah. So <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah, I wonder what uh, wonder what I could have done sober. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you know the, the, the flexible hours allowed me to. If I had too much at night, I could go in a little bit late. And I do remember many hangover mornings, you know, getting in late. Um, but working in a university, as long as the work's done by the deadline, it doesn't matter whether you do it nine to five or you know mm. ten to six or mm. frantically between two and three. Yeah. Okay. So, what about your family? Did your mum think it was a a problem? Um, I don't think my mum would have seen my drinking as a problem because it was in the context of all the all the other guys my age around me doing exactly the same. She probably thought that I was going to grow out of it when you know I got into the the more responsible grown up yep. um, situation in my life, which I didn't. Right. Okay. Okay. Uh, Dan, we might cut to you. Um, so, what was life like for you at the start? Um, it started. Uh, uh, I, I was a very sensitive child. I remember one time when I was about 11, my mother t- said to me, you're very sensitive, and I burst into tears, yeah. which I guess made her point. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so when I started drinking, I started drinking because you know so I'd seen um, some other cooler kids doing it, and so I decided to, to try it and be part of something. And um, I found that when I was drunk, I wasn't sensitive. I wasn't, you know, I didn't think I was the end of the world, but I didn't. I didn't worry about, like, people could laugh at me and I would be okay with that. And um, I just felt great when I was drinking. And so I quickly decided that I was going to drink as much as I possibly could. I didn't have the obsession at that point that I would have later. But I did it because, I mean, it was just for, in my mind, it was a good practical decision. That's the best I ever felt was when I was drunk. And so I wanted to be drunk as much as I could. And I never, never was somebody who wanted to drink. I wanted to get drunk. There was, you know... I I, did, I wasn't interested ever in having two drinks. That just no. didn't appeal to me. So anyway, so but my friends they all they all drank too. I I don't know if I caused them to drink more or they caused me to drink more. But anyway, we we all used to go out and we'd sit in the arboretum, um, and you know on at ten o'clock on a Friday night drinking slow gin out of the bottle, um, and we really only had one goal. And that was to get drunk. So that's what we did. And even when I was like throwing up and stuff, I felt better psychologically than I felt sober. Yeah. Okay. Um, So what about your friends? Were they, I think you said they they were doing the same things. Yeah. I'm not even sure if I didn't pick my friends based on the fact that they were doing that. I mean, I think it kind of, it's one of those recursive situations where, you know, one thing leads to the other, which leads back to the first thing. And I think that's what went on. Um, We all, uh, I know that, all of my what I would have called close friends, which probably in hindsight might should have been called drinking buddies, um, we that's that we all had the same plan. You know, we all uh, on a on a weekend night if we could get away, we were out together um, drinking. Yeah. So could you hide it from your family? I think so. My parents never confronted me on it. The, I started drinking when I was either 14 or 15. And the first time we ever talked about it was when I got arrested for DUI when I was 17. Um, and even then, they didn't so much want to talk about that. I, I had cigarettes on me and they were much more concerned about the cigarettes than they were the alcohol. Right. So, um, yeah, I think I did keep it from them. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so did you continue drinking through uni and things like that? Oh, yeah. Um, drank all the way through uni. I think I'm like, Jeff, I'd love to know what I could have done at university if I had, like, crazy idea. But if I had been sober, gone to class, and done some of the homework, um, might have been a very different experience for me. Um, I basically just kind of sailed through. Um, and, I, yeah, I drank, I think, pretty much, you know, memory's a funny thing, but I think I drank pretty much every night in, in college. Um, maybe not every night. Um, at that point it wasn't necessary for me to drink every night, but, but most nights. Yeah. Okay. Um, Jeff, back to you. Um, so you got through uni, got a few degrees, started work. And I think you said uh, before that you were, um, you worked out of uni. So what happened next? What was the progression? Well, it didn't take long for things to get, uh, quite a bit worse. Um, I was, I did get married and we had two children. Um, <clears throat> that was quite, you know, quite a long time ago now. Um, but, you know, we moved out to Australia and my routine was thrown into chaos. My wife at the time, we moved here for her job. So very early on, you know, a few days after arriving here, she was out working and I was at home with uh, two small children all day. And, you know, with the best will in the world... Uh, you know, uh, I found that hard, and then I started to to drink sneakily during the day, um, just keeping it under wraps enough to make me feel okay, but not to go over the score and, and get found out. Yeah. And as they got older, that pattern just continued and continued and continued. Um, so, were you working at the time now? It took me a while to find a job, um, but then again, I wasn't looking that hard, if I'm honest. Um, But then I did get a job, and it was in a university, um, and I could uh, I could come again, come and go when I pleased. Um, Quite often, I would just leave a note saying, you know, I've gone for the afternoon. I'm working in the library. but in reality, I was back at home in front of my television set watching whatever was on and, and you know, drinking gin. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, or tequila or whatever I had. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, eventually, you know, it got to the stage where I was becoming useless and unreliable. Um, my employer invited me to find alternative employment and my wife invited me to find alternative accommodation. <laughs> um, then I, yeah, I was living alone so I could come and go as I pleased, do what I wanted. Um, I still hid the alcohol, which was uh, yep. a mystery to this day. Um, <clears throat> you know, and eventually, uh, eventually things, things got, got quite bad. And I, uh, I, had a, I had a couple of sort of false starts with a home detox and stuff. Um, but then managed to get myself married again um, and, you know, back into work. But again, things were just held... Right, right on the edge. You know, I managed to keep it going. I don't think I enjoyed it, but I managed to keep it going right on the edge for a while. And then, you know, eventually there came a point where uh, I was going to lose another job. Um, I was going to lose another wife. And I went into a residential rehab for a month. Okay. Mm, that was fantastic because I didn't drink for a, a month. Okay. Uh, basically because they wouldn't let me out. <laughs> um, so were you exposed to AI at that point? It was available. Yes. Um, there was a Wednesday night visiting meeting that came in, um, which I never attended, because um, back then I, I thought you know I'll have, I'll have this time off and that'll be me. 
I'll be fine when I get out. You know, I won't need to drink. I can have the odd drink here and there. Yeah. Lasted about three weeks and thought that a bottle of rum was the way forward. <laughs> um, it was that night, but, you know, subsequently it wasn't. And I, I fought a losing battle with alcohol and alcoholism for another two years. Okay. After that experience. Okay. Back to you, uh, Dan. Um, so, where are we up to? Um, I think, you, yeah. Sorry, college, yeah. So basically you've been through uni and you're out into the world. So how did things progress? Uh, it progressed uh, haltingly. Um, I, I continued to drink, um, you know, more than any doctor would recommend. But at that point, I still don't think I had the obsession to drink. I think at that point I was drinking because it was a habit and I was lonely. I had moved to a new city and I only knew one person and he was, you know, frequently busy. And so... Um, so I was, you know, just killing time. I mean, it was drinking was sort of like, you know, watching Brady Bunch reruns. It wasn't good for me, but it killed time, right? Yeah. So, um, but anyway, what, so then what happened is I at some point became clinically depressed and I went to my doctor. I didn't know that. I just thought that I was a piece of garbage and that, anyway, I mean, you know, the whole what clinical depression tells you. And um, anyway, I went to the doctor and he took one look at me and said, have you ever been on antidepressants? And I said, no. And he said, okay, you're starting now. And so he gave me some pills. And then he said to me, um, if you drink, it won't physically hurt you to, in combination with these pills, but the pills won't work. So you're not going to get any better if you drink. And I believed him. And I then went seven years without a drink. Uh, unfortunately I didn't, I didn't have any program in place. I, that same doctor about four years in to my, into my dryness, I guess I should call it. Um, he, he, I went to see him about something else and I said to him thinking I was being all clever and everything. I said, you know, I have no intention of living the rest of my life on one plane of consciousness. And he just grinned at me and he said, you're a dry alcoholic. Um, I'm, I'm in a, a in a 12 step program. Why don't you come to my meeting next Wednesday night? And I thought, well, I'm not drinking. So I thought going to the meeting was penance, you know, like it was punishment. <laughs> and so I thought, well, I don't have to go because I'm not drinking. So I didn't go. And then sure enough, after about seven years, I got bored and I started smoking pot. And that the, I think the pot told me that it would be okay to drink. And so I started drinking again. And by then, uh, alcoholism in me had progressed to the point that I, I did quickly become obsessive about it. Right. So about how much were you drinking a day? What sort of stuff? Um, I would say one standard bottle of scotch, um, maybe a day. Okay. Or if it was, you know, I mean, I drank whatever, you know, like Jeff said, I drank whatever was available. But, um, you know, maybe three liters of wine, maybe four, um, you know, um, yeah, I was I was drinking enough that like I always I think a lot I hear this in the rooms a lot. Um People think they need to drink in order to get, go to sleep at night. <laughs> and I think I, I bought into that myth. And, you know, now I understand I, I never did go to sleep. I passed out, which is a different thing because your body doesn't recover when you pass out. You, yeah. you don't get restful sleep when you pass out. So, you know, surprise, surprise, I felt, you know, pretty groggy the next day. Um, yeah. <laughs> no surprise. No. Um, so how long did that drinking continue? I think it lasted about six or seven. I'm trying to remember exactly when I started. I know when I stopped was um, March the eighth, two thousand eleven. So it was about seven years, okay. and that was that was obsessive 
drinking every day. I would, uh, I, I was lucky enough to be in a situation. I guess I was lucky enough to be in a situation where I didn't need to work. And so I didn't have any time constraints. And so I would drink until two o'clock in the morning and then pass out and then wake up at two o'clock in the afternoon. And then for some reason, some sense of aesthetics or something said to me it was classy not to drink until four in the afternoon. So I would wait the two hours and then start drinking again. Okay. Um, so was anybody concerned about you? About yeah, my husband was, no. my husband was concerned. Um, I, it's, you know, he, he's not one to say a lot um, about me and my choices, but he did at one point, you know, say to me, should I be concerned that you're drinking every day? And I said, no, you know, <laughs> because in my brain, that was the right answer. I didn't, you know, um, and I think probably um, other people, like my brother, my twin brother, who's also an alcoholic, he had stopped drinking many years before I did. And I think he probably saw signs. Um, we went to a medita- a yoga retreat in Hawaii one time, and he was and he was dry at that I'm sober at that point, and I wasn't. And so he came into my room, and there was like a case of beer and three bottles of liquor. And he's like, well, you know, we're only here a week. And I was like, <laughs> Well, yeah. So I guess I'll only have to go to the store one more time, you know. Um, but anyway, so I think there were my parents at that point had died, so um, they would have been concerned, I'm sure, if they had known what was going on. But but yeah, my, uh, mostly it was my my husband. Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, you're listening to Living Free Show on three CR, eight fifty five kilohertz on your AM dial, and three CR on digital radio. Podcasts of the show are available. Uh, on our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash living free, and they're also available on iTunes. Um, if you have a question or comment about the show, then you can call the station on 9419 8377 or send us an email at 3 free at gmail.com. Um, I'm talking to Jeff and Dan about recovery from alcoholism and with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I think. Um, Jeff, we're back to you. So you're in rehab for a month or so, held, stopped drinking for about three weeks without any help, and then you got back onto the grog. So what was life like? Um, yeah, pretty unpleasant. It involved uh, trying to sneak around and, you know, buy and consume alcohol with uh, without my wife at the time knowing about it. Um I have a funny feeling she knew a lot more than she let on. <laughs> um, and eventually it got to the stage where, you know, she said, you can go back to rehab or, you know, whatever. Um, so I spent another week in rehab where I met somebody in my own profession in there. He was, uh, was counselling. And by coincidence or not, at one of the evening sessions, no one else showed up. It was just me and him. And he essentially, what I know now, is 12th stepped me. Yep. Um, helped me see where my, you know, you know, my I was powerless over alcohol, that my life was unmanageable, um, and suggested that uh, I got, get myself to Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I still didn't think that was a very good idea. I said, you know, I'll, I'm going to stay up all night and I'm going to think up exactly why I'm different and why I shouldn't. Yep. So I'm the next morning and I had nothing. I had absolutely nothing for him, so I went to Alcoholics Anonymous that night. Okay. On on release from the the detox, um, got to Alcoholics Anonymous, and you know heard lots of uh, kindly, well-meaning ladies talking about their jobs and their daughters and all this sort of stuff. And 
didn't think much of it really, but fortunately at the uh, at the smoking break, um, I met a guy about my age, um, my Russian friend, and uh, he suggested that I get to his home group on Sunday because I'd hear a lot more about what you need to do to, to stay sober. And went along to his home group on Sunday, and sure enough, I heard a lot more that made sense. You know, I heard a lot of guys talking about the goals that they were kicking in life at the time, um, being married, having children, holding down a job, going to their job um, every day. Um, Enjoying life. Enjoying life, doing all the stuff that you do, you know, and I thought, I really fancy a bit of that, so, you know, maybe these guys can help me get from here to there. Yeah, Yeah, a lot of people think that alcoholics enjoy drinking alcoholically, (laughs) but it's not much fun, is it? Um, In the the end. The first couple of drinks I think are okay because they they steady down the nerves they I mean I was going to suffer withdrawal symptoms if I didn't drink and I'd been through that and it was, it's terrifying it's horrible um so the first couple are okay it makes you actually relax and feel good but being an alcoholic I can't stop there yeah. you know I just keep loading it into me and then you know you get drunk and you do dumb things <laughs> and uh so that was yeah that was not pleasant. They're, they're doing the dumb stuff. Um, I think, um, yeah, and and uh, yeah. So I, th- I kind of thought I'm going to have to give this Alcoholics Anonymous program a go, and um, was nabbed by a sponsor on the way out. Um, informed me that he was sponsoring me now, and I should call him in the morning. And you know, he started me off on the the twelve step program of recovery. Next morning. Yep. And so, do you want to explain a little bit about the first couple of steps, what what they mean? Well, the first step really illustrates to us, you know, all about what it is to live alcoholically and that, you know, I was trying to drink like, like normal people. I mentioned about having a couple of drinks, feel good and stop. You know, I, I couldn't do that. I couldn't drink. Um, but I couldn't not drink either. You know, I had absolutely no power over alcohol whatsoever in my life if I drank I wanted all the alcohol you know I'd drink till I finished my alcohol and I'd drink Dan's alcohol and Mm. your alcohol you know all bets were off at that stage Um, and I was pouring it down my throat knowing that this stuff is killing me but if I don't drink it I feel like I'm going to die so I was caught in that horrific alcoholic dilemma and around that of course your life just falls to pieces you can't run your own life no um and that was, you know, that was shown to me in quite uncertain terms by the my sponsor and the, and the other men in my home group. And you know, it sort of became quite obvious that you know, the, if the first step's telling me, you know, lack of power is my problem, the second step becomes, you know, quite clear. The solution has to be power. Yeah. And that power isn't me because I've tried everything in my power to beat this thing. And I was getting nowhere, you know. I was getting my my butt kicked left, right, and centre. Um, so that that became kind of kind of clear to me that I needed to be. It says in step two, to, you know, could restore us to sanity. Um, that sounded quite good, but I really thought about it, and I thought, well, possibly introduced to sanity might be the <laughs> nearer the mark. Um, so I was more than happy to get on board and and keep working the steps. And you know, my sponsor wasn't leaving me any wiggle room. He obviously saw I was one of those intellectual types that would try and rewrite the book or rewrite the steps, and he was having none of it, Yeah, for which I'm very grateful. Yeah, okay. 
Thank you. Um, Dan, we might swap back to you. So I think we left you where your partner thought you had a problem. Mm-hmm. You didn't think you had a problem. Um, but drinking was becoming a repeated pattern in your life. Oh, yeah. So um, how'd, that, how'd that end up? Well, it ended up that <clears throat> essentially um, I did the math. And if your body can process one drink an hour and a bottle of scotch is 26 standard drinks, then basically I was never sober. Yep. Um, even though I had those two hours a day where I've congratulated myself for not drinking. Um, so that's where, that's what, where it got me. Um, I was, I don't, I, I'm pretty sure I didn't, the, the obsession to drink for me, the way it manifested was I didn't ask the question, should I drink? I knew I was going to, I don't know. Well, I don't wake up in the morning and ask myself, am I going to breathe today? No. Well, I didn't ask myself if I'm going to drink. What I, what I did was say, okay, the givens are that I'll eat, I'll sleep and I'll drink. What else can I fit in around that? Right. And so alcohol had become the number one priority. It's all I did. <clears throat> and luckily for me one day, um, I woke up, I guess it was March the 7th, 2011. I woke up one day, you know, and it got to be close to four o'clock and I thought, Oh no, it's time to drink again. And all of a sudden I just had this moment of clarity where I realized that I was not drinking cause I wanted to, and it was not helping me, even if it was just for purely selfish reasons. Like I thought I had the right to drink because I was financially stable. I had, you know, I had a home and all this kind of stuff. I thought that gave me the right to drink, but what I didn't ever question was, Okay, you have the right. You have the right to stick an ice pick in your eye, but you don't choose to, no. right? And so I got. So I looked at the. All of a sudden, I just realized, oh my god, this is this is making me unhappy. I still wasn't thoughtful enough to think what it was doing to my husband or anybody else. I was just thinking about me, but I realized it was not serving me anymore. And the other thing I realized was I couldn't stop on my own power. Within 30 minutes, I was drinking again. Even after this huge realization, and you know, in Bill's story in the big book, it talks about that, that knowledge is just not sufficient to get, uh, get beyond your alcoholism. So, um, so luckily, the next day, I had an appointment with my psychiatrist, and I went in and talked to him, and he helped me find a meeting for that night. And, I, and so on March 8, 2011, I went to my first meeting. What what was that like? Well, um, because um, I, w- I won't speak for all alcoholics, but I had very high ego and very low self-esteem. The high ego told me I was going to walk in and they were all going to be great. Like, thank God you're here. We've been holding AA meetings for 80 years waiting for you. And, of course, that's not what happened at all. And so, you know, um, I didn't talk to anybody before the meeting. I didn't talk to anybody after the meeting. Um, I didn't understand most of what was said in the meeting because I was still so befogged. You know, I mean, you don't just stop drinking and then you're clear, you know, the next day. So um, but anyway, I didn't understand most of what was said. And yet something in me said that I was in the right place, even though it didn't go kind of how I had pictured. And then I went to a meeting the second night. And it was much more friendly. Um, a, a woman there was really, really helpful to me and made me feel very, very welcome and that I was in the right place. I mean, I guess that's what a lot of times we're trying to help the newcomer with is, first, let's just make sure you understand you're in the right place. There's yeah. got to be a bunch of stuff that's going to happen, but this is where it's going to happen. So anyway, so that's how that's how I started my recovery. Okay. Um, 
and and how to go from there? What what sort of steps? Not the physical steps, but what what sort of progression did you find when you came into AA? What things were helpful to you? Oh, um, first of all, I met. Um, I'm in the same home group as Jeff, and there there were a couple of guys from that home group that I met, uh, and they were switched on. They were they were obviously happy and co- and confident without being cocky. They, they, and it just seemed so, I didn't understand a word they were saying, but I was absolutely convinced that they did. And so it was that, that, that was the first time that I thought I can turn over my decision-making at least for a little while. I can get help and listen, actually for the first time in my life, listen to somebody else's opinion about what needed to happen. So that was a huge one. I think getting a home group where, you know, it doesn't pay off right away necessarily, but in a home group. When you see the same faces every week, when you know something of their story, and and you see, you, sometimes it's hard to see your own recovery, but you can really see other people growing. Yeah. And so to see these people repeatedly. So, I mean, now, after seven years, I mean, there are people in that room, I feel like we've grown up together, you know? And so sometimes when I'm feeling a little bit like maybe I haven't achieved what I want to achieve or whatever, I see somebody that's about the same sobriety as me, and I, and I think back to when I first met them. And I think, you know, I've probably achieved that too. And so that, so it, I think a home group is really, really helpful. And I think regular meetings is really, really helpful because there is, I mean, there's a certain kind of language used in AA. Uh, it's, I mean, they're all English words, but they sometimes they have kind of specific meanings in AA. And I think going to meetings and hearing that language used over and over allows you to become fluent in that kind of language. And I think that's really important. Um, it, it, it helps. Uh, it helps me. Like now, I can think in those terms, whereas before I had to make up my own terms. So I was doing a lot of um, effort that was not necessarily needed, as long as I would just listen up and pay attention to what I was hearing. Um, and for me, I'm kind of bookish, and so I think reading the big bo- big book. I've read. I uh, did a project one time where I read the twelve and twelve sixty times. Wow. Um, <laughs> so um, in a month. So yeah, and and. And I, I can't, and it's funny because I still can't like quote to you chapter and verse from the, but I just think being in the presence of it, it wasn't what I could take away from it. It's what I could be when I was yeah. experiencing it. Yeah. So I think those were all really, really helpful things. Um, that's all that comes to mind. Okay. I think one of the things we talked about earlier was trust. You started trusting other people. Yes. And I think that's a big thing for someone who's an alcoholic who lies and cheats and deceives mm. people to actually trust someone. Yes. So what's that like to, I guess, feel comfortable with others? I love it. Um, Yeah, I think for so long I thought I was doing some kind of philosophical project that was all my own. And now I don't don't need that at all. In fact, it feels great um, to feel like you're both giving and receiving at the same time. And when I'm actively listening to somebody and taking on, taking on board their, their thoughts about the situation or more, more in AA, it's more about um, understanding their experience. I mean, I don't want people really necessarily giving me a whole lot of advice. I just want to, I want to hear your story and I'll take from it what, what I need to take from it. Um, But it's, it's so great. And that's, it's so funny because I think if, people who are not in the rooms came in for one meeting, they would be a little bit shocked because people tell truths that you just don't hear at a dinner party, you know? And it's funny because somebody will say, and then I uh, threw up all over myself and passed out in the gutter and we all laugh because it's, you know, it's funny to us because we get it. We've been there. 
Um, and so it's um, it's wonderful to trust other people. Um, and it, and it's funny. I think it's um, carried over into my into my outside AA life. I'm able to trust people more. And, and maybe part of it is that I trust myself more. And so I'm, I feel free to trust somebody because I feel like I would warn myself if if somebody weren't trustworthy. Yeah. You're listening to Living Free on 3CR on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. I'm talking to Jeff and Dan about recovery from alcoholism with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so, Jeff, I think you just got into AA, and do you want to tell us a bit about coming in and how you found AA? Yeah, um, I mean, that's, that's my first couple of meetings, I heard a lot of stuff and I didn't really understand very much of it. But, you know, like Dan said, the guys who were saying it, they understood it. And they were doing stuff regularly that I wanted to do. So I figured, well, maybe my understanding will develop as I try doing it. So I started doing what my sponsor suggested to me, um, you know, turning up at work every day, leaving leaving on time, leaving at the right time, um, you know, picking up my kids when I said I would pick up my kids, dropping them off when I said I'd drop them off, you know, doing those sorts of simple, routine, everyday things. And, you know, by, by being a bit more trustworthy and a bit more reliable, everybody out there seemed to change. They all sort of got nice. It was weird. Um, <clears throat> obviously, it was me that was doing the changing, and they weren't, you know, wary of me and retaliating and stuff. So, um, and you know, as I as I progressed, I did get to understand a bit more of what was happening. You know, I was learning to trust other people. You know, um, step four and five, I was I was talking to my sponsor about all this stuff that I'd done in the past, and you know, he didn't use it against me. Yeah, um, which. <laughs> Yeah, which was kind of strange. Um, normally, that's you know you don't talk about anything like that because it gives people the chance to be one up on you. Yeah, I think that you know your dad was an alcoholic, but that's what I found as well. You couldn't afford to tell anybody anything that they could use against you because, and so you just don't tell people stuff or you lie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's you a, tell tell lies when the truth would do. Yeah, and um, yeah, that only makes things worse. So. So what's the value of a sponsor in AA? Um, <clears throat> certainly in our home group, um, it's, it's very, very important. Um, you know, you can be the smartest guy in the world and come in and hear this stuff and read the books. That'll give you a good understanding of, of, of the program. But what you need to know is how the program works on a daily basis and how to live it. And, you know, watching these guys and having a sponsor as an example, um, you can tell you the actions you have to take rather than just reading about it, how to take the actions. Um, that's, it's, you know, it's really, really important. And, you know, a sponsor is, the, is, a, is uh, in my case, he's one guy that's been on my side, right or wrong, ever since I met him, you know. Um, he lets me know when I'm doing something that, or going to do something that he thinks perhaps is not in my best interests. Yeah. But he doesn't gloat about it when I do it any when it all goes pear-shaped. Yeah, right. You know, he just helps me then put it right. Um, you know, I'm getting increasingly better at not doing these things anyway. So, But, yeah, a sponsor, um, you know, somebody who's been through the programme, somebody who knows what they're talking about and has demonstrated results, you know, it's it's really important. Yeah, OK, thanks. Uh, so, Dan, what about you? So coming in, getting a sponsor, starting to do the steps, What what's the crucial thing 
at the start? I think the crucial thing at the start for me was a sponsor. Uh, I, I agree with everything Jeff said, and I would say that, like, in the 12 and 12, it says, you know, people of great spiritual learning still consult someone else of great spiritual learning before they assume they've heard the word of a higher power. And I, so I think I think maybe at, early on what I needed was an instructor um, because, yeah, you can read the big book and it makes sense. Um, it makes a sort of sense. But, like, for instance, I thought that I was really smart and I thought that I read step one and I understood it and it turned out that I didn't. And what for many people, I think if you just had a boilerplate, like, okay, we're going to spend this much time on step one or whatever. I think step one for most people would probably be a week or two. I don't know. Mm. But for me, it was much longer than that. And, and that's what a sponsor can do is he can tailor, he or she can tailor your instruction to you rather than just a general plan, you know? Um, I mean, my, I really appreciate the fact that, um, like my sponsor, the, the second time my sponsor, so he, my sponsor saved me on step one, but then he saved me on step two because I was having hearing problems. And I, so I couldn't understand words. I just hear and it, everything sounded like that without any diction or articulation. And so I said, well, I'm not going to go to any meetings. And he said, oh yeah, you're going to meetings. And I said, oh, okay. So I went to I went to some meetings and all of a sudden, I think it's because I couldn't hear the words people were saying, it freed me up and I became aware of at least it was a very personal experience. I'm not saying anybody else ever had it, but I became, I became convinced that there was a higher power in that room. And it, was, it wasn't exactly the people in the room. It was a presence that was in the room. And I don't think I would have, I'm, I'm too analytical. If I had heard the words, I'd have never gotten there because I'd have been so hung up on the words. And so if he hadn't insisted that I go to meetings, see, I'd, I don't know when or how I would have gotten step two. Yeah. So I think a sponsor can absolutely walk you through these things and show you, and through telling experiences of their own and finding new, uh, different ways of explaining different things until they're convinced that you really get it. Because yeah. if I were left to decide when I really got it, what that means to me is I could make a 70 on a multiple choice test. Yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> Good for, enough. For, yeah. So my sponsor, that was his standard was quite a bit higher than that. And I'm really, really grateful for it. Yeah. Um, we were talking earlier and you mentioned, um, your understanding of unmanageability in step one. Do you Mm -hmm. want to share on that? Yeah. Um, to me, like I thought unmanageability was that I couldn't handle my drinking, but it turns out that unmanageability is that when I'm sober, I can't be trusted to make a good decision about what I'm going to do next because the decision I keep making is to drink. Um, so unmanageability is, is is about your sober choices um, rather than your drunken choices. You know, drunken choices they suck, but they're but they're kind of you can kind of explain them away as well. I was drunk, but of course, if you're drunk all the time, that gets a little bit boring. But um, anyway, so that to me, that's what unmanageability is. Yeah, and also um, Jeff, with you, your life as an alcoholic drinker was a bit of a shambles. Um, yeah, bit of a shambles, you could say that. Yeah. Um, it, it was pretty much a non-entity as well, though. You know, it was. I think Dan touched on it earlier. There was getting up in the morning and figuring out 
when to start drinking, yeah. um, which was for me, you know, eyes are open basically. <laughs> um, you know, start off with a start off with a couple of beers just to steady the nerves and hopefully hold them down, and then get onto the real stuff. Yeah. Um, and I was, you know, I was missing going to things that I really liked to go to and wanted to go to. Um, you know, I'd stopped I'd stopped playing sport um, because it was just too much hassle. Um, also, anything that involved driving the car. I was always a very responsible alcoholic. Yeah. I try, I tried to minimise my drink driving. <laughs> Didn't always succeed, but I never got caught. Thankfully, I did lose my license in sobriety. However, so I guess what goes around comes around. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I the worst of my drinking, I wasn't working, so I, you know, I didn't have the responsibility to to phone in sick every other morning, um, which I had done. Um, you know, my my kids would would be allowed to to spend time with me on the proviso that I was sober. Um, I generally pulled it off that I was sober enough. Um, not particularly proud of that one. Um, but yeah, you know, the unmanageable, there was there was nothing to manage, which I guess is the ultimate in unmanageability because, you know, I, I can't do anything, so I'm not even mm. going to try. Mm. So how did things change once you had done the steps? Um, once I did the steps, I... It's almost like, you know, talk about being able to look people in the eye. I could look myself in the eye. You know, I had some self-respect back um, because I was able to function. And, uh, you know, I started a new job. Um, and I was, you know, I was one of these people that went there every morning and, you know, left at the right time, not when it suited me. Did a little bit of extra here and there. Um, got involved with service through Alcoholics Anonymous and started learning a lot of skills about, you know, working with people which I could have put into my professional life. Um, moved on to, you know, another, you know, much more responsible job, um, managing a team of people. Um, the kind of job that I was said I should have back when I was, you know, drunk and resentful and not doing much and, and completely incapable of having that. Um, I, I got it by doing the right thing. Um, you know, my my personal life improved as well. You know, I since um since got married to my third wife, who's never seen me take a drink, um, which I'm quite happy about, and I'm sure she is too. Yeah. Um, my kids kids are in touch with me regularly. Um, through you know phone, social media, we see each other as often as they can fit me in. Um, you know, my son, it's his birthday today. Um, he comes to the Melbourne Storm with us. Um, my daughter comes to the Melbourne Victory. We share interests, regular dad and kids stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm not currently working for anyone. I'm a contractor at the moment. Um, I do what I'm supposed to do. I deliver what I'm supposed to deliver. Um, our little family of magpies enjoy spending time around yeah. me, you know, <laughs> feeding them mints. Um, you know, things that I would never even have considered when I was uh, when I was in active drinking. It's not that I wanted to but couldn't. They just never things just never entered my head beyond which bottle shops open now, which yeah. is a very, very small, narrow and just hellish life to, to lead. It's not yeah. a life. It's no. barely in existence. Yeah. Okay. Um so Dan, how about you? What's what's daily life like and how different is it today? Daily life today is great, uh, and it's different in that, you know, it's, it says in the big book that we'll get a life beyond our wildest dreams. And, I, I mean, maybe it's because it was my, beyond my wildest dreams, but I couldn't really picture that. So, But as it turns out, everything is different because I'm different. And so, you know, if you, 
if you aim a lens at something, if you change the lens, you change what you see. And, and that's what has happened is now I see people. I, I mean, we're all still flawed and all that, but I see, I love people. And, you know, step nine really helped me become part of the community again, in the sense that when I made amends to people for the, th- the wrongs I had done, that connected me to them, but it made me understand that I can be part of the community um, you know, and I don't have to be a big part. I just, I just can be part. I can just, you know, hang out with people and care about them and, and try to make, make every situation, you know, something that, that is pleasant. So, and it is, it's beyond my wildest dreams. I'm, I've not, I haven't ever really in my adult life been in a situation where I was financially really strapped, but I used to worry about money all the time and I don't worry. And I'm in exactly the same financial situation I was now as I was 10 years ago. And I used to worry about it. And now I don't. So, you know, it just changes everything when, when you, instead of worrying all day, you're trying to think of things to do that might be helpful to other people or, you know, and, and therefore bring you joy. Yeah. Okay. Um, so in AA, newcomers are pretty important people. So what's, how, how does, how do AAs and AA meetings treat the newcomer coming in? Jeff? Um, well, yeah, the, the, the newcomers are the most important people. I mean, the, one of the reasons that I get to stay sober is if I help pass on what's been given to me to the new guy or the new lady. You know, I I get to share that with them and that strengthens my sobriety as it helps them. Um, you know, generally when they come in, um, in our home group, we try and get them linked up with a, a sponsor, um, temporary or otherwise, as soon as, as soon as is possible, so that if, you know, they're serious about getting well, they can get well, you know, and we give them very early on the message that alcoholics are not bad people trying to get good. You know, we're sick people trying to get well. We've done some bad or dumb things, you know. But, um, you know, it's it's that sort of feeling of belonging, trust, um, being a part of, not apart from, is a strong message from our group. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if anybody is thinking that they may have a problem with alcohol, um, look up a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, stick your head around the door and see if anything sounds familiar. You know, we're quite easy to find. We're near the beginning of the phone book. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, well, I can read out the uh, the contact details. Um, if you'd like to find out more about Alcoholics Anonymous uh, and how they could help you or somebody that you know, uh, you can call them on 1300 222 222 or go online at aia.org.au. Um well, we're heading towards the end of the show, um, so I think it's probably a good idea if we just wrap up there. Uh, so I'd like to thank Jeff and Dan for coming into the 3CR studio this afternoon and sharing their Alcoholics Anonymous recovery experience with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking about recovering from drug addiction and we'll be joined by some members of Narcotics Anonymous. Uh, If you stay tuned now, you'll hear Black Noise Radio, hosted by Kerry Lee and featuring black news and views, current affairs, music, sport, culture and the arts, all from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. Thanks for listening to the Living Free program today. (laughs) 